is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. And this is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. For our topic this week, we'll be talking about something that has been in the news time and time again. It's honestly something that's at the forefront of our minds at any given time, and that's healthcare policy. On a good day, it's pretty challenging to understand how healthcare policy works, but especially during the global pandemic, it seems there's been an outburst of emotion and opinions and thoughts from everyone from every corner. So we thought we'd help clear things up. Healthcare in Canada really in Cole's notes, is divided between the feds and the province. The federal government set up the standard of health care in Canada via the Canada Health Act, which many listeners would know as universal health care, one of five main principles in the Canada Health Act. Then the provinces, based on that standard, are responsible for the on-the-ground administration of health care services that folks would access. Although healthcare policy has evolved over time, today we're going to be looking at both a historical and current look at how to understand this very convoluted and challenging topic that is healthcare policy. Today with us is former senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister of Health, former two-time vice president academic and external with the UPEI Student Union, current grad student, and forever connoisseur of craft beer and our good friend, Travis Gordon. Travis, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's wonderful to be with you, although, you know, virtually. So our first question, you know, we're going to start off with a tough one. How are you doing? Uh, good question. Um, I, I'm doing well overall. Um, you know, I, uh, I left the working world back in at the end of July, took a month off, and now I'm um, studying uh, for my master uh, master's in public policy and administration at Carleton. So um, overall, you know, uh, I, I would say fairly well. How are you folks doing? We're good. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I, I'm doing good. Need more coffee, need more water. That would be probably the best way to describe it. I don't know if you're in that category. Absolutely. Okay, so Travis, our first official question for you today is, you know, how would you describe the division of responsibilities between the federal government and provincial and territorial governments when it comes to healthcare? Great question. Um, and one that I think it really isn't actually asked um, quite enough. So let's start in 1867 with the Constitution Act. Um, there were basically, you know, the only real mention of healthcare as we would think of it um, in any relevant term today would be uh, two sections in the Constitution. One, the federal government was given uh, power over marine hospitals specifically oh, wow. and quarantine. Uh, and two, the provincial governments were given uh, jurisdiction over hospitals writ large. So over time, that's sort of um, been interpreted by various courts um, to basically mean that uh, provinces and territories have responsibility for the operations and policy of the healthcare system in their jurisdiction. So they operate the hospitals, um, you know, they regulate healthcare professionals, um, they manage the actual funding of the system and how people actually experience the healthcare system every day. Um, but 
in the context of the federal government, um, you know, in 1867, we had a fairly narrow conception of what healthcare was. It was about treating disease. Now here in 2020, and I think at various points throughout our history as a country, um, we've come to realize that healthcare is much broader in nature. It involves, um, you know, to use one example, and maybe I'll riff off that, um, is actually preventing people from becoming ill in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the federal government's role, recognizing that the provinces and territories actually manage how people experience healthcare, fundamentally is about um, coordinating among provinces and territories to achieve common goals when ministers are able to agree, uh, <laughs> performing a very significant regulatory function in terms of making sure, for example, that drugs are safe and efficacious, um, that the foods we eat, are actually safe. Uh, you know, I mean, um, the federal government essentially regulates every single item you could find in a Walmart, for example. So consumer products, uh, pesticides, um, foods, uh, drugs at the pharmacy, anything like that. Mm. Um, and the federal government really, uh, aside from that, plays primarily an informational role, but also, and this is, uh, of course, of, of significant interest to provinces and territories, as it should be, funding. Um, so the federal government typically funds about 20 to 25% of a provincial territorial healthcare system. Um, and in exchange uh, for that funding, of course, uh, the federal government uh, wields the power of the Canada Health Act. So provinces get that funding in exchange for adhering to the five key principles of the Canada Health Act. Those are public administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, and accessibility. And really that's all about creating a, a, a common standard of ability to access and experience healthcare in Canada. Mm -hmm. And just off that point too, Travis, like mentioning the five principles of the Canada Health Act. And I think what a lot of you know, listeners would think of when they think of healthcare in Canada is that it's universal, like you said in the third one, universality. Um, but as we know, you know, when this had been initially introduced throughout the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. um, there were different levels of both um, implementation, but as well capacity in each of the different provinces, of course, um, based on a number of different factors, whether that be um, access to funding or access to uh, post-secondary institutions to graduate doctors and things like this. Mm -hmm. But in 2020 now, there still remains to be uh, differences between the provinces. So the next question would be, how would you compare healthcare in a province such as PEI that would be a smaller population as well as more reliant on the federal government for that funding as you had mentioned, as well as with an aging population? And how would you compare that to a province such as Alberta, which we commonly kind of refer to as a have province with a younger growing population? So how would you compare healthcare in, in those two provinces? Mm -hmm. Great question. So I mean, um... You know, a, a, an individual person's experience with the healthcare system in either of those those instances will would would be generally the same mm. um, in terms of how they experience healthcare on the ground. Um, but in terms of setting healthcare policy, I mean, you're you're exactly right. You have to think of different considerations, like you know, the rurality of a province. Mm. Uh, Prince Edward Island is a very small province, um, about 150,000 people, um, but with very high population density. Right, um, because you've got those people jammed onto a, a you know, a fairly small landmass. In Alberta, 
Um, you've got to think about, um, you know, how you're going to get healthcare to people in Northern Alberta, where the nearest, you know, city uh, may be um, hundreds of, uh, of kilometers away. Um, so, you know, you really have to, provinces and territories, I, I think a strength of our system actually is that, um, you know, healthcare policy will be different uh, in each province and territory, and that's to take into account factors like rurality, like the age of the population, um, like the province or territory's relative fiscal health, mm. um, you know, and it, to some extent, different ideologies. Uh, I mean, you know, um, not to turn this into a political science uh, podcast, so to speak, but, you know, <laughs> uh, people you know, people have different ideas about what should and should not be uh, generally between the provinces and territories. I mean, mm. you know, what I think about really is um, a province like Prince Edward Island, 150,000 people, seven hospitals in the province of Prince Edward Island. Mm. Um, you know, there are some people who, who I believe are misguided who say, you know, maybe the federal government should have jurisdiction uh, over sort of healthcare policy hospitals uh, to go back to that constitutional terminology, mm -hmm. the actual delivery of healthcare. Can you imagine, um, <laughs> like, if, if Ottawa was in charge of healthcare delivery in Prince Edward Island, do you think there'd be seven hospitals? You know, for all the, for all the issues that we see uh, in, you know, healthcare delivery across the country, um, I, I don't have a terrible amount of faith that, um, you know, I have, I have a high degree of confidence in, uh, in the federal health portfolio staff, but I don't think they're terribly well prepared to actually manage a healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, these are very different skills. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, each province will naturally bring different considerations to the table uh, in terms of operating its, its healthcare system and determining its, its healthcare policy. Um, and that's entirely natural. I, I think it's a reflection of the way that we've actually set up this country to be, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a fairly decentralized federation. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So when we're looking at the way that this pandemic has been handled, the one factor that doesn't seem to have been taken into consideration by anyone is the human factor, looking at quarantine fatigue, where, you know, scientists uh, know that the best way forward is to buckle down and wait, but social scientists don't seem to have been consulted as to, you know, what is the impact that this will have on people. At one point, is everyone just going to say, oh, you know what, I'm still going to go meet my friends. So how would you kind of envision the involvement of social scientists in a public policy related to COVID-19? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think this is actually one of the strengths of public health. Um, it, you know, um, public health officers and um, the chief medical officers of health across the country um, really stand at the apex of what the scientific evidence tells us versus, you know, actually understanding how people react to guidance, right? And so, you know, it, it, I think it's undisputable um, that a quarantine lockdown mode is the best way to get this virus under control quickly. But you're right to point out that humans, you know, humans aren't necessarily wired uh, to not see anybody. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's always funny to me when, you know, um, I'll use an example. So uh, some time ago, uh, British Columbia, um, Dr. Bonnie Henry there came out with guidance on um, practicing safe sex 
during yes. COVID-19. <laughs> and I actually think that's an example of why public health expertise is so crucial because it marries, you know, the scientific um, desire to get people um, to reduce, uh, you know, the sort of risks that they are taking with the reality that people take risks every day mm -hmm. because they have needs over and above not getting COVID-19. And a lot of people laughed uh, about that sort of guidance, you know, saying, well, it's a bit contradictory if you're not supposed to see anybody. But it's really in those sorts of things that, you know, sometimes don't really make sense, um, where you can actually see that sort of social scientific aspect of public health policy being set. Um, you know, I, you know, on the spectrum, I would say I tend not to, uh, not to not to drift towards the extremes um you know i find myself fairly middle of the road on on a lot of things and and this is one of those you really do have to take into you know uh take into account the fact that um people do behave differently because they have needs over and above you know simply getting uh, this virus uh, under control um, and that's where you see it and we all laugh uh, but you know, that's, that's actually a prime example. And um, you can see analogs in the form of the war on drugs, for example. Um, you know, that is actually an example of public health policy, which successfully sort of understood, sure, the scientific evidence um, and the risks posed by um, hard drug use, but also um, the reality that people are likely to do it anyway. So let's make it as safe as possible in the form of safe consumption sites, in the form of different approaches to the legality of certain drugs over and above others. Um, so, you know, I think if you sort of, you know, lift the veil a little bit, you'll see that public health officials really are quite good at taking into consideration those, those two sort of competing um, bodies of literature. Mm, absolutely. And you know, I think when we're looking at the pandemic in itself right now, it seems like we're reaching the light at the end of the tunnel with talks of vaccines being developed. We know, of course, there's a number of companies that are racing to develop a vaccine with uh, the UK having approved the first one to be used um, over the next few weeks. So I think one point that has been brought up a number of times is that none of the vaccines that have been developed so far were developed in Canada, which means, you know, we're kind of reliant on uh, the availability from companies that are not within the country. And to many, you know, this kind of underlines a little bit of a weakness of the system here. So how would you envision this gap being filled? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, what we really have to consider is, um, can we do everything? Um, and that's, that's a question that every country has to ask themselves. Mm -hmm. And usually the answer is no. <laughs> um, you know, we, we can't focus on so many different uh, things at one time. That's not, you know, I'm not trying to excuse the lack of uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity in Canada, but, um, you know, these are just the realities of an interconnected and global economy. Is certain company or certain countries, excuse me, will do certain things to their economic advantage. Um, and that's, that's just how it works. I mean, Canada uh, doesn't have uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity for the newest uh, novel vaccine technologies, which are the, the two front runners. 
um, Pfizer and Moderna. Mm -hmm. uh, those are mRNA vaccines and the first uh, mRNA vaccines developed using that technology. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's not unusual necessarily that, that Canada, even though we're a highly developed country, um, wouldn't have that capacity. Mm -hmm. With that said, you know, I think um, global leaders are acknowledging uh, that, you know, COVID-19 won't be over until we're all vaccinated. And I use all in the global sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I would very much expect to see once countries, you know, are able to get their first doses out, mm -hmm. um, to see, you know, uh, I, I hope to see increased collaboration. Um, vaccine nationalism uh, has been a topic throughout the pandemic, and it's, it's a really interesting one, but I, I do hope that leaders will sort of come together. Now, all that having been said, um, just because Canada doesn't have vaccine manufacturing capacity doesn't mean that Canada is at the back of the line. Um, yeah. Canada uh, actually has secured the most doses per person per capita. Wow. Uh, um, in the world, I believe at nine doses uh, per person. Um, that doesn't account for timing, uh, but it is a signal that Canada acted very quickly to start um, conversations with vaccine manufacturers. Um, so, you know, I, I would expect, you know, Canada might not be at the front of the line, but Canada's not at the back of the line. That's, that's, simply not the case. And I understand people's concern. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's perfectly reasonable, but, you know, Canada will be vaccinating people, uh, you know, starting early in 2020. And it's, it's, you know, December right now. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, I think, am chewing on a lot of those points that you brought up that I had never thought of before. And I wasn't aware of the statistics on, on how many that we've obtained per person per capita. So I think that's really, I think, telling of, like you said, you know, how quick to the ball that we were. And I think that, like you said, it's, it's going to ease a lot of um, people's, you know, very, you know, genuine and reasonable concerns. So I think you're right. Um, switching gears a little bit, though, and, and this is our second last question. Um, pertaining to, of course, pharmacare. So uh, in 2018, former minister uh, Bill Morneau announced that there would be the advisory council on the implementation of national pharmacare. This, of course, was uh, led by uh, Dr. Hoskins, who was the former Ontario health minister. So this was, of course, looking at what could a national pharm pharmacare program look like here in Canada. Then the council came back and they had said that a single payer national pharmacare program would be recommended. And this was something that Dr. Hoskins had also noted that in the liberal platform as well in the last election, the throne speech and of course the mandate letter from Minister Haidu had mentioned looking at pharmacare. That being said though, it's really interesting when we look at, you know, how do people experience accessing pharmaceuticals, medicines, et cetera, in Canada. And it was actually noted in the report that at the time, one in five Canadians struggled to pay for their medications. Um, and this, of course, in COVID, although we don't have the data yet, um, could have increased as well just due to different financial concerns. Um, this being said, the timeline that was put on that report was a 2027 um, implementation. All that being said in a very roundabout convoluted way, from a policy perspective, how would or how could a national pharmacare program uh, impact healthcare 
in Canada, both from a federal perspective in terms of, like you said, with the Canada Health Act and that kind of overarching role, but then as well, the role of the provincial and territorial governments for administering um, healthcare in, in each of the provinces. How do you feel that would impact that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, so uh, first off, um, you know, this, this drive um, towards national pharmacare um, really has been driven by the federal government. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, so, you know, earlier we talked about um, the fact that healthcare, you know, delivery is provincial territorial, but um, healthcare in the broad sense really is, is pretty ambiguous in terms of who has jurisdiction. So certainly the federal government is, is well within its rights um, to be pursuing this policy. Um, but the reality is that um, the federal government is not really going to have to deal uh, with, you know, the intricacies <laughs> of implementing this policy. So it's it's quite interesting to me. I mean, um, in terms of uh, its impact on healthcare, um, you know, I mean, uh, certainly we see the complications in the healthcare system of, you know, uh, not uh, taking. Uh, drugs that are prescribed uh, to patients. Um, and that often leads down the road to further complications, which frankly are more expensive to deal with. And provinces are, are really interested in containing their costs in the healthcare system. Um, uh, but I think one of, one of the, you know, one of the really interesting challenges um, in actually implementing national pharmacare province by province is going to be how the provinces um, deal with their existing programs. Um, you know, um, Prince Edward Island, for example, has a program right now called the Generic Drug Program, yes. um, where uh, they will cap uh, your monthly expenditure on a generic drug at $20 a month. It doesn't matter how much the patented version costs. Um, you know, and that's, that's sort of um, broadly accessible. I, I think it might be income tested um, as many of these programs are, but mm -hmm. um, you know, I think provinces and territories are going to have to be thinking about national pharmacare in the context of their existing program. Um, so catastrophic drug plans, um, uh, what's it called? The uh, the Ontario Drug Benefit in Ontario. Other provinces have various programs. Um, to some extent, provinces are already extending pharmacare to limited groups of people by way of these programs. Yes. Um, so you know, it's 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 going to be interesting to see. I think the the impacts on the healthcare system overall will be positive. Um, will they be cost neutral? I think there's literature suggesting um, that they will be. That they're likely to save uh, money. Um, so that's obviously uh, very positive, but it doesn't account for the upfront expenditures that provinces and territories have to bear in order to bring the program uh, about. I think broadly, you know, one other observation I would have on national pharmacare is, you know, if done right, this could represent a, a pretty, um, pretty significant expansion of uh, the federal government's role in actually setting sort of healthcare policy throughout the country. And so I will be very interested to see, um, you know, whenever the provinces and territories and the feds are actually ready to talk about it because they're a bit busy right now. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll be interested to see how those conversations play out. Um, definitely a step in the right direction. 
uh, but um, a lot of work ahead, uh, to say the least. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I know we had chatted about this uh, before we had started recording, but of course, taking courses with Dr. Don Desarud mm -hmm. and uh, one of his, his infamous courses, and I feel as though I've cited it in this podcast before, was uh, Canadian federalism and the relationship between the, the provinces and territories, as well as the federal government and kind of, you know, the historical look at, you know, what do you, you know, give up to gain as being part of a, a federation? And then as well, like in 2020, when we're looking at programs such as National Pharmacare, what does that look like when there are, you know, shared responsibilities in the broader context of, of healthcare that would infinitely impact not only, you know, the federal government's role in expanding it, but also the administration of um, healthcare at a provincial and territorial role. Of course, we know, like, for example, in some of the articles that I had read, folks had experienced, you know, cutting their medications in half because they couldn't afford, you know, two months worth, so they'd only get uh, one month and then spread it over two months and the impacts of that or not getting it at all or not paying for food. And, and then, of course, the impacts on the healthcare system of that. So um, definitely interesting. I think you're right, though. There's definitely... Um, that's a whole other, as I say, bag of beans to deal with, mm -hmm. perhaps for another day. But I, I hope it's soon because I think the research is there. And, and I think, like you said, it's a matter of getting the seats around the table and figuring it all out. We do have one last question for you. We know you're on a tight time schedule. But to pay homage to your time at the cadre, of course, the uh, UPEI <laughs> Student Union newspaper, Instead of our traditional segment, which is the MRM, the movie restaurant music segment that we do with guests, we wanted to highlight uh, a historical look at the cadre. For listeners, the cadre used to uh, entertain what was known as the booze panel. Um, you can look at this on their website. And of course, what this was, was uh, looking at different drink options and, and providing commentary on it. So uh, we're going to do a bit of a different structure of that today. Of course, we're all big fans of craft beer. So today, instead of the MRM segment and to pay homage to Travis's time at the Cadre, we're going to do a craft beer panel. Now, I'm not sure which one of you wants to share your wisdom first, but I'll, I'll cede to the both of you and, and entertain and listen. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I mean, uh, maybe I'll jump in here. I, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's morning here. So unfortunately I, uh, I, I don't have access to, uh, to beers in front of me, but, um, I think people who know me will know that I'm a huge, huge fan of, uh, of, uh, Upstreet <laughs> Brewing Company. Uh, in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and it's been a few months now since uh, since I've been able to uh, to sample some of their wares. Um, but two beers, I uh, I, I really want to shout out uh, from Upstreet that I think still take the cake for me in terms of my my absolute favorites would be um, the Do Gooder APA, mm. just an outstanding uh, you know sort of end of day beer is how I would describe it, mm -hmm. um, you know. Uh, and then uh, White Noise. Uh, White Noise is just, uh, you know, a hazy IPA, uh, great flavor, um, great texture. Uh, you know, it's exactly what I'm looking for, uh, let's say, on a Saturday night around 7 p.m. That's, that's my Saturday 7 p.m. beer. Awesome. awesome. 
Well, I'll go next. I think these past few months, Emma, you know this, I've been getting really into sour beers for some reason. So Gahan's Raspberry Sour uh, from Lone Oak, this the South Shore Sour, and Upstreet has a really good seasonal, which is the Major Tom Sour. So I find them really easy to drink. So yeah, sour beers are my pick for the day. I totally forgot about the Major Tom. Okay, so for context, I'm also team Upstreet. I love all the other ones up PI though. Love Copper Bottom, love Bogside, love Lone Oak, love PEI Brew Co. Um, they're all wonderful. There's a new one that also opened up in Cornwall that I've yet to try, but I'm looking forward to. But I have to agree with both of you. White Noise is, oh my goodness, it's a very chaotic beer if I was to describe it anyway. And I feel like I really identify with that on um, nothing to do with taste or, you know, texture or whatever, just kind of the overall experience. But I do love the taste. It's not sweet. It's got a huge punch. Um, it's very kind of like um, sharp. And, and I like that. So I really enjoy that because I'm not really into the whole mm -hmm. sweet sort of thing, but really like that. And the Major Tom, also Travis, for your, for your own knowledge, uh, Sweat and I were big Major Tom Sour fans uh, from Upstreet. It's a seasonal beer. And so when we were still at the student union, we had begged the bar manager, Mike, to make sure that they had Major Tom Sour in stock. Now, of course, we just so happened to be the only two people that drank it for, I don't know, whatever reason. And, and Mike used to always say to us, you know, you two better be drinking that. I'm paying for it. And we're like, no worries, Mike, we'll take care of it. And we did. I think we ended up we drank the whole stock for the year. I can't remember. Did we? Yep. And it wasn't even just the Major Tom Sour. They carried Vic, Vic Park specifically for us as well. Oh, yes. I love Vic Park, too. I, that, is, that is another excellent beer. Greg, I, I forgot about that one, but I, I love it. That's my end of day beer. Like if I was to pick an end of day beer, Vic Park, no question. And then a Saturday or a Thursday night beer, a white noise. Um, okay. On, the taste but that's all I have for beer commentary do you have anything else no I think we covered the essentials okay um do you know can I offer a fun fact uh, yes. that I I think uh I think uh is is a nice way to maybe uh, close this off mm -hmm. um did you know that the department of health at the federal level actually did not exist until 1919 from 1867 to 1919, the Federal Department of Agriculture uh, was responsible for any federal policy in the area of, uh, of healthcare in this country. So that kind of shows you, you know, um, what the conception of healthcare at the time was versus, you know, where we've come, where we have the health portfolio with, uh, with actually five different departments or agencies all doing different things under it. And then of course, our various provincial territorial healthcare systems. Wow. wow. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agriculture Canada was, uh, was uh, the Federal Department of Health for some time. Oh, wow. Not in name, of course. Happy 101st birthday to the Department of Health. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure they appreciate it. <laughs> we'll have a beer on them. Yeah. For them, maybe, maybe on them. I don't know. Anyways, well, Travis, thank you so much for being with us today. And this was a lovely fun fact to end things on. Yes. Thank you so much. It's always a treat getting to listen and learn from your wisdom as someone who's lived in <laughs> <breathed> healthcare <laughs> policy. 
Oh goodness, for better or for worse. Um, well, it was great. It was great. To, uh, it was great to be here. Uh, thanks for the time. Thanks for having me on. And uh, and I hope I uh, hope this was uh, a helpful conversation. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Our closing music is, as always, by Shane Pendergast. But today we don't have any future shows or events to promote because, as we all know, COVID restrictions have tightened once again in Prince Edward Island. Despite all of this, we hope all of you are staying safe and staying connected. Stay safe, everyone, from us at Dialogue, and happy holidays. And you folks can expect a very exciting and interesting and topical episode for next week that will leave as a surprise. This has been Dialogue. Thanks.